Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Um, I'd like to thank you for attending this lecture at the Institute of World Politics today. For those who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs and 18 certificates of study. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Joseph R. Wood is a retired Air Force colonel. He served in the White House as a senior appointee from 2005 until 2008 as Deputy National Security Advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney, with responsibility for all policy involving Europe, Eurasia, Africa, and defense issues. His military career included operational and command fighter assignments in Asia and Europe, uh, faculty duty in the Department of Political Science at the Air Force Academy, where he taught U.S. foreign and defense policy, service at the Pentagon as speechwriter for the Chief of Staff and Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force, and temporary assignments in the Joint Staff, the U.S. mission to the conventional forces in Europe taught in Vienna, the Central Intelligence Agency, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and NATO SHAPE headquarters in Mons, Belgium. After retire, retiring from the Air Force, he was appointed a member of the Career Senior Executive Service at NASA headquarters. He later worked in the RAND Corporation's Washington office. He was a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. from 2008 until 2012 and worked at Bay Systems Incorporated from 2011 to, until 2012. He has taught in a variety of graduate seminars in Europe. Please join me in welcoming Professor Wood. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it very much. Uh, Katie uh, Lichowski asked me to do this. Katie Bridges, I guess, asked me to do this um, a while back on relativism. And we finally got the date set. And I'm glad to be here. I'm happy to talk about the topic because it's one that I basically teach. Those of you who are students know what I teach as hope is the antidote to, to relativism. And it's interesting because it comes up with my students immediately in two different ways. The first is that the students have heard something about relativism and they, they don't want it exactly. They know they're not supposed to want it. And so they ask, am I a relativist? And they want to know if... Uh, if the fact that they think that you should take circumstances into account when you're making moral decisions makes you a relativist, because circumstances change, or the fact that we perceive things differently, one person perceives a situation one way, another person perceives a situation another way, does that make me a relativist? And the answer to that is no, that actually makes you a follower of, uh, of Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas, and we'll talk about that in just a second. It makes you uh, not at all a relativist. It comes up indirectly as well, and this is where the title of the lecture comes from. In a lot of conversations, both of my students, when I was in government, in the private sector, everywhere I teach, uh, seminars where I teach, the answer to any question that involves a statement of right and wrong is almost invariably begun with, for me, or something close to, for me. And the reason for that is that we're all trained, and this has been going on for a long time now, we're all trained to avoid offending each other. 
And the way that we avoid offending each other in a lot of conversation is to say, what's true for me may not be true for you, and that's fine. So the shorthand for that is, for me, this is my answer what that is. Because we don't want to we don't want to claim anything. We want to avoid a claim of an absolute. Absolutism sounds bad. Absolute dictators were bad people. Uh, we don't want that. We want to avoid what our current pope likes to talk about as rigidity in our thinking about things. So it's necessary in normal conversation these days to make to keep things civil, to avoid offending the other person to say, for me, the answer to this question of right or wrong is so and so. And for you, it might be something very different. That's fine. That does tend to relativism, although most people who say that are not relativists. They're just trying to avoid a fight or a bad conversation. So today I'm going to talk about what relativism is, but it's not. I'll talk about what relativism is not first, and then I'll talk briefly about what it is. And I'll talk about how we got to a point where relativism is really the dominant moral thought process of our day and age. And then I'll talk finally about the consequences of what that is, of, of the fact that we are in a cultural milieu that is largely relativist these days. What is relativism not? What can we exclude from the category of relativism? The first thing it's not is believing that perceptions cannot be relative. If you believe that perceptions are relative, you're not necessarily a relativist. It's a little warm in here for me right now. My senses tell me that. Some of you may think, ah, this is a perfect, comfortable temperature. Finally, IWP got the temperature in the room just right. <laughs> Others may say, this is kind of a cool room for me. I'd actually like it a little bit warmer this afternoon. That's a relative perception of what is painful and pleasurable, less pleasant and more pleasant. That's fine. There's no reason morally to have an objective statement of that. Other things are obviously the same way. When you're a five-year-old, all adults seem very tall. When you're an adult, not so much. They seem about the normal range of heights around us. So all of our perceptions, all of our lives change relative to our own senses and our own physical status. And uh, even on a more even level, if we've got the exact same physical situation, if we're looking at things literally from different angles, you'll see a different result. This is why eyewitness testimony in court is so often unreliable. It's difficult for people. Uh, but perception can be relative. And again, relativism is not believing that you should account for circumstances or situations when you say something is right or wrong, when you decide to act in a particular way. You have to take into account circumstances. And the circumstances do affect what is right or wrong. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a few minutes. So what is relativism? I'm going to give you my own definition. I think it's a fairly sound definition. And I hope it's easy enough for you to follow. But I'm going to say that relativism is believing that there is no moral order outside of our own minds, which we must seek to know, and against which our actions can be seen as right or wrong. That's a little bit wordy. Let me try it again. Relativism is believing that there is no moral order outside of our own minds, 
which we must seek to know, and against which our actions can be seen as right or wrong. In other words, all of the morality of a relativist resides between the ears. That's where it is. And we'll talk about how we got to be in that position. And the way we've got phrased the question about whether relativism is right or wrong is, is there a reality that we ourselves do not create? Is there a moral reality that we ourselves do not create? If I ask any of you to go up to the roof and jump off, most of you are going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. The reason is that when you jump off of a high building, 100 times out of 100, you fall. For medium-sized objects, not at the speed of light, the equation force equals mass times acceleration applies. The law of gravity will cause you to fall. Is there a moral order that is as natural, as real, as that law of gravity that would stop you from jumping off the roof for fear of hitting the ground? Now, relativism, I just want to point this out initially. Relativism has, if you really are a relativist, and there are very few really committed relativists, but you have an immediate problem if you're a relativist. Because what you're saying is there is no moral order that's the same for all of us. There's no moral order other than what I create in my mind. The difficulty with that, if you said there's no objective truth, and yet you've just made a claim to truth, you've claimed that there is no moral order. So you deny that you're a relativist immediately. So there's a sort of a, at a basic level, it's very hard not to be, or very hard to be a relativist. But if you're gonna take that minimalist level, and that's where we, a lot of us are these days in our society, and I want to proceed with uh, examples of great efforts to provide insight into a real moral order that would contradict the relativists. There have been relativists for all time, by the way. This is not a new phenomenon. I think the degree to which it affects our society is, is greater than in the past. But there have been relativists all throughout history. I think the first and uh, perhaps most original notion of the fact that there is a moral order to things comes from Plato. And it's generally in the mouth of Socrates or the Athenian stranger or someone of uh, Plato's characters in the dialogues. Plato, for a lot of reasons, including having watched Socrates get killed for making claims of truth, doesn't usually come out and say, here is my clear case for what I'm saying. He writes in dialogues, and allows them to tease out ideas in ways that it's very hard to do you're just writing a straightforward exposition of something. But it also allows him to kind of hide where it is he means, so that Athens won't come along and try him like they did Socrates, and kill him like they did Socrates. So it serves a, a, both an intellectual and a self-defense function for Plato. But Plato's moral order is all throughout his work. It's very sophisticated. It uh, it's, doesn't try to claim to be more than it is. But it's basically in his ideas of the forms, of the ideas. And Plato gives us in the Republic the famous parable of the cave. And he imagines, tells his friends that he's talking about, he's trying to get to the question of what is justice? In other words, is there a moral order? That's the whole question of the dialogue. And so he goes into something called the parable of the cave about how we know what is or is not. And he says, uh, how many of you familiar with the parable of the cave? Uh, he says, imagine a cave where everyone 
is looking at a wall in front of them. And they're chained and they can't move while they're looking at this wall. Their heads are constrained so they can't look around. And they're in a cave, it's very dark, except behind them there's a fire. And between the fire and their backs, there are things going on. And so what they see on the wall in front of them are the shadows of the things behind them. But they don't know that all they're seeing is shadows. For them, that is reality, the shadows in front of them. They don't know that there are actually real things behind them. And if you are fortunate enough to be one of the philosophers of the world, you might be able to ascend from the cave and climb out into the cave where you would immediately be dazzled by the bright sunlight. And that sunlight is the philosophical truth of the forms, these pure ideas. If you look around and you see something beautiful, a beautiful flower, a beautiful person, uh, a beautiful piece of art, that example is not beauty in itself. The most pure and the most real beauty for Plato is the form of the beautiful. It's not out there in any particular place, but it exists and it's very real. It's the most real thing there is. The beautiful flower is something that's less real than the beauty itself. The same is true for truth and most of all for the form of justice and most of all, excuse me, for the form of goodness. Things that are good, in a sense, participate or partake of form of goodness, a pure idea. That is the moral order then. And Socrates and Plato through Socrates talks about in a variety of different dialogues what that implies for us. In uh, the Gordius, for example, a dialogue that I teach regularly, the question is what is justice? First of all, it's what is rhetoric? Rhetoric turns out it's, dis uh, it's disconnected from this moral order of things. It's disconnected from truth turns out to be something quite evil. He says it's basically like cookery. It can be used for power. But if it's connected to justice, if rhetoric as speech is serving justice, in other words, if your speech matches reality and is participating in the forms, the highest forms, then you are acting according to justice. And that is a very important thing because he claims at the end of that dialogue that we're going to be judged for our acts. Uh, he gives a myth myth about how people go to particular places after they die, depending on where they lived when they were born, or where they lived when they were alive. And their bodies, which are corrupt, go with them, and then the souls are judged as well. And they're judged according to justice. There is an order to things which is reflected in our just decisions. And we have to pay a penalty or enjoy a reward coming after that. The interesting thing about that is he tells this myth and he warns Gorgias and his friends, the people he's debating with, Socrates says, you know, I know that you think these myths are old wives' tales, but I say until we find something better, we have to live by these. And he calls them over and over again, reasoned accounts. These aren't sort of imaginary things, they are reasoned accounts of what is, of a moral order of things. Sure, they present things with particular characters as judges who may or may not exist. But his reference to reason in that dialogue is quite fundamental. I'll talk about it again in just a second. So that's Plato and Socrates. Uh, as most of you know, I'm sure Plato was the student of Socrates, and Plato's student was Aristotle. And Aristotle differed in some ways from his teacher, 
but a lot less, I believe, than most people would think he did. But Aristotle looks around and says, well, you know, Plato, my great teacher, you have these very interesting ideas on these forms, these pure ideas. Where are they? I look up in the sky, and I don't see them. You know, I dug a hole, and I don't see them down there. Where are these forms? If you were talking about these pure ideas. And Plato argues that you only really see reality. You only see beauty or truth or justice in real things, particular examples of truth, beauty, and goodness. There are universals of truth, beauty, and goodness, but they only really exist when they're in a particular person or a particular thing. And that's how we know what they are, by looking around us and seeing what they are, rather than theorizing, as we would call it, in an abstract way about these forms that are out there somewhere. Aristotle looks at nature, all of nature, as a cosmos that's a whole. He looks at everything in the context of one big whole. So within that whole, you have nature. And around, he, and Aristotle just likes to look around and listen to opinions, and most of what he does is kind of say, that's a good opinion and that's a bad opinion. That's a good opinion and that's a bad opinion. And the good opinions, argue again that the, the reality that we see around us is in particular things, it's in real people, particular people, all the time. But it's in the form of these universals that show up, and it's in a cosmos that in a sense all fits together. Part of what we see around us is nature. And nature is those things that have within them some capability to come to their own fulfillment, if you will. If you just let a plant grow, if it gets enough soil and enough water and enough sunlight, it's just going to grow. You don't need to do anything to make that happen. So there's a nature to it. We humans come to our nature, which I'll talk about in just a second. We'll do that on our own if nothing impedes us from doing that. A dog starts out as a puppy, becomes a dog. That's natural. There are other things in the world, too, that are not nature. There are things that we make, technology, arts. If you take a lump of bronze, it's not going to make itself into a beautiful statue by itself. So it's not of nature in that sense. But it's of the world. It exists. It's real. But it requires us to come in, an artist, a sculptor, to come in and make it something real. The fulfillment of those things in nature, which have this capacity to come into themselves, the fulfillment of the nature within something, a person or a city, is happiness, is, that's telos, it's end of things. And for us people, that's happiness. We're supposed to be happy. And he says that activity is not a state of mind. It's not nirvana. It is instead an activity of the soul. It's an action. And it's contemplation of the very highest things, the most divine things of all. There is divine within us, which makes this possible, except Oddly enough, he says that there are really three kinds of lives. There's the contemplative life, which would be the most complete fulfillment of our telos. The most human that you could be, the most happy that you could be, would be to contemplate the divine things all the time. That would be great. But then he says almost no one can do that. Really, humans can't do it. It's such a divine activity that we seem not able to do that. And so the best thing that we can do is a life in politics, very broadly defined. I'm not talking about running for office. I'm talking about being involved in the common good of the political association, in this case, the city. And that requires you, in either case, a contemplative life or a life in politics, requires you to live a life of virtue. It's the virtues that allow us to reach our fulfillment as human beings, to reach our telos, our end, 
of happiness. It's very odd, incidentally, and this is just kind of an aside, that humans are the only thing, as far as I know, we haven't seen John's graduate, who can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but as far as I know, the only things in nature that do not really complete their own telos are humans. We don't get to the point of being completely contemplative as Aristotle looks around and sees us. That, of course, fits rather nicely with the Christian notion that we don't get to our perfect happiness in this life and we have to wait until the next life for what Aristotle would call our telos. Aristotle is not a Christian. Preceded him by 200, 250 years, had other differences as well. But there is a very interesting little uh, congruence there that's interesting, that is interesting to me. I said that we have to live virtuous lives. We have to live lives according to excellence in order to really live as we should to reach our telos of happiness. Or if we can't be this wonderful contemplative, to live in even a good life in politics, you have to live according to virtue. And he talks about this in his book, The Nicomachean Ethics. And I'm going to read you a definition of virtue, this thing that is essential to happiness. And it's such an important part that I'm going to read it to you in two different translations to make a point that I'm, I'm going to try to make. The first is the translation from Oxford by David Ross. And it goes something like this. He says, virtue then is a state of character concerned with choice. A state of our character concerned <coughs> with choice. In other words, it's about action choosing something, lying in a mean in the middle, the mean relative to us, relative to us, this being determined by reason, and by that reason by which the man of practical wisdom would determine it. Virtue, a state of character, concerned with choice, about a middle, to choose the middle, the middle for us, relative to us, for me middle for me, being determined by reason, and that by that reason by which the man of practical wisdom would determine it. We cannot, for Aristotle, turn to a list of rules to decide what the mean is, his golden mean. We have to watch somebody who has virtue make choices. And even that's not really sufficient. It's as if there's kind of a hypothetical person of virtue who would be the standard for this. But again, there's no in-the-sky thing that we turn to to say, ah, that's the virtuous choice for me right here. Do I talk a little bit longer? Do I stop talking now? What's the mean for how long I talk today? What would the virtuous person do? How long would the virtuous person talk? That's how he sees it, really in a person. It's how you have to think about virtue. Same definition again. This is under the, a different translation by Bartlett and Collins. Virtue, therefore, is a characteristic marked by choice residing in the mean relative to us. It's a characteristic marked by choice, the mean relative to us. Relative, again, same trans uh, different translation, same words. Defined by reason and as the prudent person would define it. So again, by reason is by the prudent person, by the wise, how the wise person, the virtuous person, would define it. So the correct choice is the mean. Now, the thing is, the mean may change depending on the circumstances. Whether I go up to turn off, turn down the air heat in here will vary depending on perhaps my concern for the comfort of others in the room versus my own comfort. More serious choices change as well. But the choice is for me, what I would make. It's a mean for me, not an absolute or rigid mean. 
in any particular set of circumstances. Now, he saves himself from relativism in some important ways. First of all, he says some things are always wrong, always non-virtuous. Murder, theft, adultery, always wrong. Those are the examples that he gives. So there are what, much later in Christian thinking, would be called intrinsic evils for Aristotle. There are things that are just never right. But there's an enormous amount of latitude in what we do, in our human choices. And that's, a, that's an important point that we'll come to again. There's an important latitude in how our reason can get to the mean. Now, Aristotle is also intensely interested in justice, in the individual and in the city. He talks about it in the Nicomachean Ethics, and he talks about it in the politics. Justice, he says, really is the virtue of the individual, but mainly of the city. And that is the moral order that he's looking for. I want to go back to Plato just for a second, now that the sort of Aristotle has given us this idea. And in Aristotle's later dialogue, the laws, in, in the Republic, he constructs kind of a, what's called a city in speech. It's a hypothetical city, and he himself says, this city is never going to exist. It's so just, it would really never exist. It's the only city that if you're a real philosopher, you would want to participate in, but it's probably never going to exist. In a later dialogue, the laws, he starts talking about what for him is a more realistic city. And there are three individuals involved, a, a Spartan, a Cretan, and an Athenian stranger, not named Socrates. If any of you want to do a PhD dissertation, that's an excellent topic. There's a lot of debate on it. It's not going to affect us here tonight. But he takes a similar approach to virtue. And he says, about human beings who inquire into laws, and we're to the rules of the city, to what commands us in the city, almost their entire inquiry concerns about pleasures and pains in cities and in private dispositions. Pleasures and pains, that's what virtue is about, how you choose when you face pleasure and pains. Those two springs flow forth by nature, and he who draws from the right one, at the right time, in the right amount, is happy. The same as Aristotle will claim. If you exercise the virtues and you find the mean, in the right time, for you, then you'll be happy. And it's the same for the city. It's the same for individuals, and it's really true for every animate being. So for Plato and for Aristotle, and I think for Socrates before them, by nature, according to nature and what is in us, there is such a thing as virtue, which is to say a moral order, an excellence in choice, an excellence in action. And acting and living to it allows us the realization of our telos. It allows us to be human, which is to say happy. Not perfectly happy. They knew that wasn't going to happen in this life for us. But relatively happy. Pretty happy on the whole. Now the Bible, and I'm obviously going through a list of some of the main sources of the Western world tradition. In the Old Testament, uh, the moral order for the Jews is the law. That is their window into the divine, into God. We see it in the Ten Commandments, which are almost universal, which describe the relationship, first of all, between us and God, and then between us and us, between person and person. I think you all know the Ten Commandments. In Psalm 1, the very first of David's Psalms, he says, Blessed is he who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. And I think a reasonable translation of blessed in this case is happy. If you are able to contemplate the law of the Lord day and night, which again, for the Jews, that is the divine, the law that comes from God, then you are blessed. That's the best thing that you can possibly do. The, 
contemplative life of Aristotle is for the Jews the contemplation of the divine, of the law. And in the New Testament, Christ declares himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, he is both the end and the way to the end, and is thus the standard for the moral person. I want to talk about just a couple of thinkers in the Christian tradition who have developed this, St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. When St. Augustine begins to talk about the moral order, he does it again, like Plato, like you would expect, because Plato, he had read Plato and it heavily influenced him on his conversion to Christianity. But he does it like Plato in talking about the law. He actually imports, I think, a little bit of Aristotle, although he says he didn't read too much Aristotle. He's, he makes a funny comment at one point about, this is St. Augustine, about how, yeah, I read the categories of Aristotle. I understood it immediately. It was no real problem. I just didn't get that much out of it. Well, if you've read the categories, you'll know it's not actually that quick to grasp for most of us of average mentality, but Augustine seemed to get it pretty quickly. But in his book on free choice of the will, he has two kinds of law, two kinds of rules, if you will, bad word, but two kinds of things that command us, that tell us what to do. The first is eternal law. And he calls eternal law the highest reason. Remember how both Plato and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle all define human virtue in terms of reason. It's according to reason. Well, St. Augustine continues that and calls the highest reason, which must always be obeyed, and by which the wicked deserve misery and the good deserve a happy life. That's eternal law. Always to be obeyed and by which the law that we call temporal is rightly enacted and rightly changed. Temporal law are the laws that we set for ourselves, our speed limits, our tax codes, our healthcare law, our criminal codes. Those are all temporal law, and they change with time. They're also called later on positive law that we'll talk about in just a second with uh, Thomas Aquinas. But they, this notion of eternal law is the highest reason that always has to be obeyed which define or tells you whether the person is wicked and thus to be punished and or good and deserving of a happy life. He says this eternal law is eternal and unchangeable. The eternal law does not change. It is stamped upon our minds. It is the law according to which it is just that all things be perfectly ordered. Justice, again, what is just? How do we get to justice? We order our temporal law and our actions according to eternal law. Temporal law simply has to be ordered to eternal law. Our tax code somehow has to be ordered to eternal law. A lot of ways to do that. A lot of ways to do that. What is a reasonable tax rate in 1925 is not a reasonable tax rate in 1942. Not a reasonable tax rate in 1998. Not a reasonable tax rate now. That can change. It is or should be just and can be justly changed over time. We can change our tax code. And uh, the example that Augustine gives is actually a little bigger than the speed limit going from 55 to 65, for those of you who are old enough to remember that. Or for change, it's less, much less trivial than the tax code. He actually talks about a people who are self-ruling, capable of ruling themselves. And they become corrupt. And over time they become corrupt. They change. As a result of that, 
He argues it's no longer just for them to rule themselves according to eternal law, but it's just for a strong man to come in and to attempt to correct them and return their laws to an ordered relationship with eternal law. And then you get a full explanation of what most people think of as the counter to relativism in Thomas Aquinas, and it's called natural law. Uh, and so I'm just going to try to zoom through some Thomas Aquinas for you very quickly. Thomas Aquinas has four kinds of law eternal, much like St. Augustine's, natural law, positive law, which is what Augustine was just calling temporal law, the laws we make for ourselves, and divine law. Temporal law, again, our tax code, our speed limits, whatever they happen to be. Divine law is revelation, the Ten Commandments. This is when God comes to us and says, do this, or don't do this. That's divine law. So the two that I'm most concerned with right now are eternal and natural law. Eternal law is the moral and providential plan of God. It's really God's mind. And here's how Thomas Aquinas describes it. This is in the Summa of Theologians uh, in the first part of the second part. And he says, the rational governance of everything on the part of God, the rational governance, again, we're all, all in the realm of reason, of everything on the part of God as the rule of the universe has the quality of law. And since the divine reason's conception of things is not subject to time, but is eternal, this kind of law must be called eternal law. Now, eternity is hard for us to get our heads around, at least for me. But if you think of, of time as space in a spatial analogy, you can kind of imagine that God is at the center of a sphere, and the sphere has all the points of time on it, so that God is equally close to each point in time at any one time. So God is as close to someone in 5000 BC as he is to us tonight. The fact that we are more recent than someone in 1875 does not make God any closer to us. He's as close to any point in time, and thus his law, his thought, is eternal. That's the definition of eternity. And then here's what he says about natural law. Since everything that is subject to divine providence is regulated and measured by the eternal law, everything subject to divine providence is measured and regulated, judged, by eternal law. It's evident that all things participate in the eternal law in a certain way because it is imprinted upon them through their respective inclinations to their proper actions and ends, which we all have ways of behaving normally to get to our end, if nothing impedes us. Animals do, plants do. Rational creatures, people and angels, are under divine providence in a more excellent way than the others, since by providing for themselves and others, they share in the action of providence themselves. So we're participating in God's action. These participate in eternal reason in that they have a natural inclination to their proper actions and ends. We have a natural inclination to be happy. That's our end, as Aristotle told us. And such participation in the eternal law by rational creatures is called the natural law. Natural law is participation by reason in the mind of God, in the eternal law. Now, the point I want to bring out there <clears throat> is that it's much like Augustine 
and much like Aristotle, as you would expect. Our participation in the eternal law, natural law, is not a code somewhere. It's an act. It's an act of participation. Just as happiness, for Aristotle, is an activity of the soul. And in both cases, it's an activity that is oriented toward the divine. Natural law oriented toward the eternal law. Well, in all these cases, then, natural law were precedents in Aristotle, and Plato, and, Augustine, and St. Augustine, all involve understanding a true moral order to things, whether it's in the mind of God or in the forms. That, in turn, orders what we do, the laws that we make for ourselves <clears throat> and on an individual level, the actions that we take, and we order that according to reason. It's that use of reason that is, in all cases, the excellence that gets us to the activity that we're aiming for. This is a really kind of an optimistic perspective because it says that we can do it. We may make mistakes along the way. We will make mistakes along the way. Our reason is flawed. We don't have perfect information. There will be unintended consequences of what we do. But somehow, it is possible with steady effort and with lots of conversation, dialectic, with uh, work and community, we can somehow order ourselves and understand this reality that's out there. Meanwhile, the relativist would say there is no real truth to know. There is no mind of God. There's my mind, and there's nothing outside of my mind. And there is no, uh, no reason to use my reason. The thing that I use my reason for is to create my own reality, my own moral order, my own scheme of things. Like I said, I think few people really are complete relativists. They're just there was a Financial Times columnist recently who wrote that he thought there should be more adultery in the world. There just aren't many people like that. You just don't find them very often. And relativism has been around since the start of time, but for some reason it's now more prevalent than it has been in the past. We have less confidence in this eternal law, less confidence in the forms, less confidence in the universals and the virtues, that we had before, in some cases, no confidence. And why is that? How did we get to what Pope Benedict XVI has called the dictatorship of relativism, or something very close to it in our, in our current condition? Well, I'm going to give you uh, sort of a five-minute at most speed through several hundred years of intellectual history to try to give you a couple of the high points, maybe the low points. And it almost always happens unintentionally. By the way, my assumption is that Ideas have consequences. Now, everything we see around us may or may not come from the set of ideas that I've described and the contrary ideas that I'm about to describe. But I believe that ideas do have consequences and that somehow these ideas have worked their way into our consciousness either before or after, uh, earlier or later. And the first of the thinkers who I think begins to really take this apart, again, quite unintentionally, and set up the possibility of relativism is Rene Descartes. He's famous for his statement, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. But the thing that he does that sets up relativism, I think again quite inadvertently, 
is he removes the final cause. Aristotle had four causes of everything. Everything that exists has a material cause, the stuff that we're made of. As a formal cause, that's kind of what it's supposed to look like. So that's a table. Everybody kind of looks at that and knows it's a table. You look at this and you know it's a podium. So it can be described as the look of things. It's what it's supposed to look like, the form, how we perceive it. So that's the formal cause. The third cause is the efficient cause, what brings it about. The constructor of the table is the efficient cause of the table. Somebody made the table. That's the efficient cause. And the final cause is what it's for the sake of. So this table is, at the moment, it's for the sake of holding Samantha's water bottle. That's what it does. And it's holding other things. We are for the sake of happiness, according to Aristotle. That's we, we are for the sake of, of something. Descartes looks at this, looks at 15, 1600 years, 1500 years of, of uh, moral philosophy, more than that, and says, you know, this business of trying to fit all these causes together hasn't worked very well. I understand material cause. I understand there's stuff out there. And I understand formal cause. I understand how things look. But I'm going to do away with consideration of final cause in the physical sciences. We aren't going to worry about what things are for anymore. And he does this very explicitly. His first work is called uh, Discourse on Method. His second major work is uh, Meditations on First Philosophy. He writes a lot of other stuff as well. And he says quite clearly in Meditations on First Philosophy, I'm not going to concern myself with final cause in physical science anymore. What I'm going to do is try to understand the material cause of things, what they're made of, and what they look like, and how we can change that in order to serve mankind. And this has amazing effects. This opens, for reasons that are still not clear to me, possibilities of physical investigation that were not there before, and produce everything that we have around us today from phenomenal medical care, extraordinary x-ray machines, iPhones, technology like that, that we can manipulate things around us and choose our own final cause for them. So responsibility for the for the sake of comes instead from the whole of what it's part of to instead becomes what we choose it to be. A remarkable form of autonomy. And it begins to work. Now Aristotle the Bible and the Christian thinkers that I mentioned saw the cosmos of the universe as a whole, in which, according to the Aristotle, Aristotelian notion of the cosmos, the earth was at the center, the sun revolves around it, and the stars around uh, surround it in their perfect circular motion. Well, Copernicus, uh, Galileo, others come along and demonstrate that that is not the case. And thus, the physical arrangement of the cosmos is demonstrated not to be what Aristotle had thought it to be. As a result of that, Aristotle gets thrown out. Everything about Aristotle gets thrown out. And we no longer begin, we no longer look at things as a whole. We look at them as a group, as parts that happen to be in various places and various times, and whose positions and composition, whose form, we can manipulate for our own purposes. So the parts become very important to us, and the whole falls off. Now what happens if that whole had something that it was for the sake of, like the eternal mind of God? Then we have a problem. But if you're only looking at parts, there's no reason to be concerned about that. And there's no reason to be concerned about a moral order of things. 
And the last person that I just want to touch on is Immanuel Kant, German philosopher writing in the 18th century, who, again, looked around at the success of physical sciences and uh, was quite amazed by it, success especially in Newtonian mechanics, and again decided that we needed a new approach to a moral order of things, and basically agreed with those who said, in the physical world, things are predetermined. We really don't have any freedom of choice about things in the physical world. Our only freedom lies between our ears in the moral decisions that we make about things. Now, I'm giving you a grotesquely simplified version of Immanuel Kant. Uh, but the effect of what he does is to say, therefore, because that's reality, only, the only morality that really exists is our motivations our desires, whether we, what we want and how we want it. The consequences of what we do don't matter very much. He then says that each person is an end to himself. In other words, your, own, your telos is simply you. And your moral responsibility is to reason within that framework. And he therefore moves the telos, the end of humanity, from some sort of eternity, some sort of divine <laughs> truth, to ourselves. He doesn't want to do that. I don't think, but that is the effect of what he does. That produces this enormous sense of moral autonomy because each of us has to be treated as a self-legislating being. We have to be able to create our own laws in order to be uh, what we are, to be human. I want to talk about just very briefly the consequences of relativism, and they are, I think, severe. I'm going to go through these again very quickly. The first consequence of relativism is that you cannot have friendship. Friendship involves a connection between two people based on excellence and based on a common understanding of a reality in which their friendship makes them both better, happier. If there is no truth, no common truth, objective truth, you cannot have that connection between people. And that is disastrous. Everybody thinks you have to have friends. So, crazy people think that you have to have friends. Uh, it was a great problem for ancient philosophy on how you could be uh, a self-sufficient person and still have friends around you if you depended on friends. Uh, big problem. And so Aristotle comes out and says, no, you absolutely have to have friends. And he moves the excellence of self-sufficiency to this idea of happiness that he's talking about. But I don't think if you're a relativist you can have friends. You don't have anything in common with anybody other than yourself. The second thing is that you cannot have politics. By politics, I mean you cannot have a cooperative effort for the common good, because there is no basis on which to agree what the end of the common good is. It's not possible. There's nothing there to agree on. If that's the end, uh, Aristotle also talks about in politics how in order to have a politics of the city, you have to have a common understanding of good and evil, just and unjust. And that's precisely what the relativist denies that you can have. There's no real agreement that's possible on that because there's no reality. Which means that all political choices become strictly a matter of power. Whoever can choose, whoever can force the choice, wins the debate. The third consequence, I think, is that we lose the capacity to use our reason. Reason 
in the tradition that is non-relativist, claims that the whole purpose of our reason, really, is to reason our way toward a moral reality. For a relativist, the only use, there's no real use of reason. There's only the use of imagination to imagine the world that you want it to be, the moral order that you want to be, and then act based on that. And if you don't use your reason, you will certainly lose it. And last, I think, in the sum total of all of those first three consequences is that we cease to be human. It's no good. Uh, there's no reason for a life in virtue. There is no good life, objectively understood. There's no struggle to know good and evil, and to do one and to avoid the other. Avoid evil, do good. Perhaps the most fundamental statement of the Western moral tradition is possible. In becoming a person who is virtuous, and thus, in some sense, fulfilling your telos of happiness, in becoming a person who is a political actor, a citizen, part of a larger group, working for a common good, those are the ways in which we really become human. If all you are doing is creating a reality between your ears using the imagination, then I would argue that you cease to be human. And you come into a material abundant dark age, a age in which our engineering skills are fantastic and our moral skills are non-existent. The physical order becomes the only order, and there is no distinction between man and animal. Now the question I have for you, how do we get out of it? Thanks very much.